Apostle Paul, uh, known initially as a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, way back when they didn't have last names, you were called either by the town you were from or by who you were married to or who your daddy was, uh, Saul of Tarsus, just like Jesus of Nazareth, Saul of Tarsus. And he was a, a up-and-coming, mobile uh trained by some of the finest minds of the day in law and in theology. He was on his way to stamp out this fringe cult called the way. We would call it Christianity. And while he was on this tour to to take care of, persecute anyone who claimed to follow Jesus, Jesus, the ascended, resurrected Jesus, came back to earth. To our knowledge, the only person that, that Jesus came back to earth to see. And And from that encounter... Paul realized that it wasn't about connecting with God, was not about jumping the hoops in the right religious system and being real good and doing all those kind of things that he was trying so hard to do, but it was through grace, it was through Jesus. And this is called the good news. We said last week there were four, four words. If you can get these four words down, you've got the, the good news down. This is called the gospel. It means good news. First word is God. And it's that understanding that there is a God. He created us. He is forever. He was before all time. He's going to be after all time. Holy, righteous. And he created us to be in relationship with him. Man, man, second word. And man, though created, you and I created to be in relationship with him. Scripture says from the time we've been born, actually conceived, we've been conceived a sinner. We've been conceived separated from God. Isaiah 59.2 says our sins have separated us from God. So we go through life and we kind of know that there's something other than what we see and feel and all those things. We know there's a God somewhere. We're not sure how to get to him. And so we try all kinds of stuff, religion and those things that we just start to deny him, whatever. Um, but, but we live separated from God. Uh, third word is Jesus. And this is God's solution. He knows there's no way we can get to him on an, on our own. So God came down. He took on mortal flesh. He took man in one hand, God the Father in the others. And through his death on the cross, he put them back together by taking away our, our sin. All sins paid for in Christ. But it's not an automatic deal. You have to do something, which is our fourth word in gospel, and that is response. You have to believe. You have to trust. You have to come to him in repentance and say, my life is yours, believing that he alone, his death alone, is sufficient. This is called the good news. But Paul was going to realize that not everybody thought this was good news. And we recognize, once we embrace the gospel, that everybody out there, matter of fact, Scripture said the majority will not think this is good news, whether they just don't believe in God and they think anyone who would advocate that is ludicrous, or whether they're very happy with their system to try to reach him, thank you very much, and they do not want that inference that their system is inferior, or or maybe they just, and I think this is at the heart of it with with everybody, they just don't want to submit to him. I mean, you know your children, right? right? You're not the boss of me. And we grow up this way. God is not the boss of me. I'm my own boss. And if I want him to be, I will let him. I think maybe I don't, but I'm the boss of me. We want Barabbas, anarchy. We don't want Jesus. That's, that's persecution arises. Uh, we, we find this from the beginning, right? Genesis 4, a very beginning. Cain and Abel. And they know what they're supposed to do to serve and worship God. And Abel does it, but Cain, eh, he's not so sure. And this is a fascinating story because you know this story. Abel never says anything negative to Cain. Doesn't, doesn't, you see, I told you, nothing like that. But yet Cain hates him. 
He hates him because he's just living righteously, because he's, he's doing what he's supposed to do, because he's connecting with God. It makes Cain angry. So Cain lures him out to the field and kills him, persecutes him. And maybe this is why Paul will say in 2 Timothy 3, 3.12, there's a matter of fact, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I love, this is not, if you live in a communist country, this is going to happen to you. But all who live godly in Christ Jesus, regardless, will suffer persecution because there will always be Cain's who are not happy with the way Abel's are living. Just that their lifestyle is going to make them feel bad and they're not going to want to go this way. So Jesus said this in John 15, didn't he? If they persecuted me, you think they're not going to persecute you? Yeah, they're going to persecute you as well. You might, as a believer, stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. What kind of fine print is this? You know, hey, man, I just wanted forgiveness and go to heaven one day and stuff like that. I didn't know. No one told me about this. Well, and if we haven't, it's the church's fault. It's not the Bible's fault. The Bible makes this very clear uh, that we were, when we embrace the gospel, we embrace persecution for the gospel as, as well. Now, I don't, don't, don't be thinking, oh, this good news is like bad news in disguise. You know, or maybe it's good news when we die, but until then, it is bad. It's not, my life is going to be a bummer and there will be no joy. As a matter of fact, just opposite. Just opposite. Jesus said, Matthew 5, he says, Blessed or happy or joyful are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There is a joy that you only know through persecution. It's not like I can be joyful maybe in spite of persecution. There is a joy you can only know. Through persecution. Philippians 1 6, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 1 6. Since you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you welcomed the message, the gospel, in the midst of severe suffering. These guys were catching it from the beginning with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Next. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, which is whipped, which with, with a, I mean, this looks to me like this would hurt. People died from being flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, again, we're thinking we live in 21st century America. Maybe one day if things get really bad, we will suffer persecution. I think, I think not. I, I know some of y'all are there already. You are suffering for the gospel. Some of us The rest of us probably should be there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But when that happens, when it comes up, when we face that opportunity, what do we do? Because you know as well as I do, our default system is going to be to run. It's going to be to negotiate. It's going to be to compromise. It's going to be to avoid this. No one wants to chase after pain. What is that about? So how can we persevere? We better figure that out before we get it. Because you will get it. All who live God in Christ Jesus will. So how? Well, our text before us in Philippians 1, Paul addresses this. And I think if we can figure out what he's saying, when that comes for us, or for those of us who are in it right now, that will give us what we need to be able to persevere through it. Would you open your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1. We're going through the book of Philippians. This summer we're in verse, starting in verse 12 this morning. Let me read this for you. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me 
has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now, let me back up a little bit. Five years before this time, Paul's hanging out in Jerusalem. He was told, don't go back to Jerusalem, Paul. Last time he was there, riot ensued and he almost got stoned. Don't do that. But he goes back. It says the Spirit's calling him back. He goes back. He gets beat by a mob. They're going to beat him to death, but the Roman guards step in. They save, basically, they save him. They put him in jail. But there is a plot by the Jews to storm the jail, to ambush, to kill Paul, so much they hate him. So cover of night, the, the Roman who's in charge of the, the court there in Jerusalem sends Paul under watch of cavalry of 500 men, Roman guards, to Caesarea, to stand before his boss, the governor, Felix. Paul goes on trial before Felix. The Jews are accusing him. Felix throws him in jail for two years, keeps bringing Paul up to talk to him, hoping that Paul's going to give him a bribe. Paul doesn't give him a bribe, but every time Paul comes, he gives him the gospel because that's what Paul does. He just gives him the the gospel. Felix dies. A new governor comes on, a guy named Festus. Festus wants to make the Jews happy. So he says, Paul, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem for for a trial. And Paul says, whoa, he knows. I go to Jerusalem and I'm not coming back. So he plays the only card he has left as a Roman citizen, and that's to appeal to the emperor. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. And so he is literally shipped off in a ship. Uh, End of Acts talks about this fascinating story. There's typhoons in the water, and there's a massive shipwreck, and they end up on an island, and there's deadly snakes and all this stuff. He finally makes it to Rome. He's in prison two years waiting to talk to the emperor, come before the emperor. While he's in Rome, he's writing this stuff that we have right before us. And these, these Philippians might look at what he's going through and thinking, ah, I, I, don't, I don't know. And so he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's became clear throughout the whole palace guard. Palace guard, about 9,000 guards, handpicked to take care of Caesar himself and Caesar's uh, uh, interests. These guys are are the best and the brightest. They are like West Point grads and Secret Service people. They will serve Caesar for 12 years. And here, uh, whatever the contingent is, they will rotate in and out. Because Paul is under house arrest, but he will be chained to one of these guys 24-7. So a guard will come in, chain up to him, they'll shift, the new guard comes in, lets one guy go, he's there. But, But Paul's not chained to these guards, they are chained to him, Right? Yeah, he's got a captive audience, literally. But, but these guys, after they serve 12 years, what they are going to do is they will go out very influential positions. They will become the, the commanders. They will become the generals. They will become senators. They will become the ambassadors. If you want to move up in the government, this is the way you went. These are the sharpest guys. These guys will become the top business uh, entrepreneurs of, of, of Rome. If you want to influence Rome... This is the group you have to get into. But these guys are untouchable. There's no way you can get into these guys unless you're a prisoner. And they have to be chained to you. 
And so for two years, these guys are being... Now, can you imagine if Paul is thinking like the only thing in life is comfort and convenience, and this is so unfair, and I didn't do anything, and I'm missing my family and friends, and I should be out there planting churches, but I can't even do that. And every time these guards are chained to him, he's griping and complaining and telling him how, how unfair he's been framed. and He could have done that, but he doesn't. These guys hook up with a chain. I can imagine him saying, well, hey, Claudius, it's good to see you again. Yeah, a few days. Now, you told me last time that your wife was sick. How's she doing? I've been praying for her. Oh, yeah, she's better. Good, good. Hey, you remember last time we were together, you asked me about this Jesus? Well, let's just say this. Let's say you're, you're guarding the, the, the emperor. And an assassin comes up, and he's going to stab you in the back so he can get to the emperor. And just before he stabs you, another guard jumps in, in front of you. And he's off balance, but so the knife goes into his heart and he dies for you. But you turn around and you, you save the day, but he died for you. That's kind of the way it was with Jesus and me. I mean, and on and on and on and guard after guard. I have this feeling that the guards coming in and out of rotation with Paul kind of looked forward to this. They were ministered by this guy. They, they were shepherded by this guy. They were cared for like nobody else could care for them. And according to Paul's words, a handful, we don't know how many, trusted Christ. They, they embraced the gospel. And so, this is, this, this is fascinating. A mere 260 years from this point, uh, Caesar, this guy's name is Constantine, comes on, and he legalizes Christianity. Now, a, a sociologist by the name of Rodney Starks, uh, Stark had this question, how come this ragtag little following of this Messiah, who, who the people turned against and the government killed, how come they turned into such a big thing? I mean, Christianity is is got twice as many adherents as the next religion in the world today. He said, how could this happen? And so he does this research, and it's impeccable, his research in his book, The Rise of Christianity. But one of the things, one of the reasons, I believe is right here. The Apostle Paul is influencing, leading to Christ, some of the most powerful people, people who will control the destiny of Rome, the most powerful nation in the world. He is preparing the world. It's said that when Constantine legalized Christianity, he didn't like join this cult just to make them popular. But according to Stark, the empire was already majority Christian. And Constantine was just seeing what was. And aligned himself with it in order to bring his empire together. How did they grow? Well, Paul, right here, right here. Because God uses our persecution like nothing else. To talk is cheap, right? I have so many philosophies out there. But when you see somebody go through something that they could have avoided if they just would have not been so stubborn religiously, if they would have just given up on Christ... But they go through it anyway. It makes you stop and wonder. And Paul says, you need to know that what you see me going through, persecution. It's God's way to advance the gospel. And it's advancing. But he says, that's not all. Also, you need to know that because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. 1956. The Aka Five, they call them. This is the, the Jim Elliott, Nate Saint group. Uh, some of them grads from Wheaton. They went down to Ecuador. You know the story. Murdered on the Uray River in Ecuador trying to reach a lost tribe. They were murdered by the tribesmen. That got national coverage. 
next year, for probably like the next decade, I think it was, most mission, evangelical mission groups saw this spike in recruits, people wanting to go to the mission field because of their testimony. I read the book about this, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, there are several books out it, but there's one, Shadow of the Almighty, which was Jim Elliot's journals that Elizabeth, his wife, put together. I read this in 77, roughly 20 years after this time this happened. And no book, other than the Bible itself, no book has God used to challenge me more and make me want to know him and serve him more than this story. When you endure persecution for him, no one's go look, we don't go looking for it, but when it comes, you endure it in faith. You know what? Nothing challenges the body like that. Nothing. Nothing will do that. Now, Paul's going to go on, verse 15. He's going to say, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do it in love uh, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now you need to just, just, just kind of like a parenthetical deal here. You need to know he's not talking about apostates. He's not talking about people who are preaching cultic Christs, Mormon Christ, Jehovah's Witnesses Christ. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about people who are preaching health, wealth, and prosperity, Jesus. He's not talking about people who are preaching liberal, uh, Jesus, universalistic Jesus. It's not Galatians 1, 8, and 9. People who are preaching that, he says, let them be accursed, anathema. Now, he would never be rejoicing that people are preaching another gospel. These are folk who are preaching the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching Jesus. But maybe they're out there thinking, you know, Paul got himself thrown in jail. Obviously, God's displeased with him. But look at me. Look at my ministry. It's flourishing. I'm doing well. And Paul recognizes a question that the Philippians would be asking in their head. But some of those folk, Paul, preaching it, aren't, their hearts aren't right. Paul says, yeah, 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 I, I know. But as long as they're preaching the gospel, Jesus, oh, well. Oh, well, they can't hurt me. Good. Now, let me ask you, myself, what are your personal aspirations? Uh, because this is, this is, this is important for, for us to stop and ask ourselves, what do I uh, live for? If that was me in chains, man, am I going to be just looking for comfort? I need to get out. I need justice, whatever, whatever else. Or are our aspirations the advancement of the gospel regardless of those things? Um, in Christendom, let me put it this way, there are many things out there, good causes, that can a lot of professing believers throw all of their time and energy behind. Let me ask you, what consumes the vast amount of your time and energy and passion and heart? Is it uh, the abortion issue, the pornography issue, the homeschooling thing? Is it uh, a health issue? Is it well, What is it that, that the sex trafficking thing, the social justice thing? There's a gazillion of them. And Christians, please don't, hear me, don't get me wrong or don't quote me wrong. Uh, Christians should lead these things and get in behind them. And we should be Wilbur, Wilberforce people and William Wilberforce and make it happen. I, I got that. But when we make secondary things primary... We lose. The 
unbelieving world is happy if we live for those things. We get accolades if we live for those things. But when we put the advancement of the gospel, number one, and those things, number two, and we keep in mind that the most important thing is the gospel going forth and people coming to know Christ, even more so than these secondary issues. When we have that kind of a mindset, when the persecution comes up, we can persevere. But if we don't have that kind of a mindset, we will run. Or we will sweat our way through it in in horrific fashion. But we can persevere through persecution. But we need to see the persecution through his eyes. Paul says a second thing here. The second part of 18. He says, yes, and I'll continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. You know, this 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 is fascinating. Paul, in just, he doesn't know how much time, will be standing before the emperor Nero. Now, Paul knows Nero's reputation. Uh, Maybe you know Nero's reputation. Nero, on a really good day, really good, he's feeling benevolent, nice and kind. He hated Christians with a passion. On a bad day, he enjoyed torturing them. His exploits history books are filled with taking Christians, dipping them in wax, impaling them on, on poles, sticking them in his garden, lighting them on fire. Then he would write through with his chariot, mocking them. No, you're really the light of the world. <laughs> he would take Christians, he would wrap them in, in um, animal skins and then throw them in his Colosseum. While thousands of other Romans joined and watched uh, them. Ultimately, Nero would be the one, tradition says, that's going to take out Paul and Peter. Uh, Paul knows that Nero loves to crucify Christians, just like Jesus died. And he's going to be standing before this guy. And what did he do when he was before Felix and when he was before Festus and he was before Agrippa? Well, he shared the gospel. He's going to share the gospel again. But how in the world is Nero going to respond to this? So this portion of scripture is, is probably the most personal because Paul starts working through this in his mind. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? He says, though, that this has, want you guys to know that this has happened to me uh, for my deliverance. That word deliverance, you see that? That's the word salvation. It's the same word we use for salvation. Now, now, let me, let me unpack this for just a second, because this is Christianity 401 stuff. We live on 101 stuff often. This is 401 stuff. Salvation in the Bible is talked about in three ways. We have salvation past, okay, from, from, from all my sins. That's justification. Salvation present. That's the sanctification thing. He gives me the power to grow and become more like him. And then there's salvation future, glorification, when I finally get to heaven. And some have said, he's talking about that third deal here, glorification. He says, this thing is going to work out for my final salvation. I just know Nero's going to take me out with this. Um, I'm not sure that's what he's saying. Something else he's going to say later on kind of debunks that. I think he's looking at that second way. That this, here's what he's saying, I think. That what's happened to me is good for me. Did you get that? This persecution, it's good for me. And you know, if you get to that crossroads, none of us would choose to get, but we're forced to get crossroads and we choose Christ. You know what happens? That point we've died a little bit more to ourselves. That point we burn just a little bit brighter. 
At that point, he is just a little bit more alive in us. We understand him and know him just a little bit more than we possibly could have otherwise. And Paul recognizes this. The persecution is not something you're going to go looking for, but it's not something to run from either. Because if when you get there, if in fact you deal with it properly, then what's going to happen is the gospel will spread through that, uh, through uh, people coming to know Christ. The gospel will spread through that, through emboldening other people. And also it's good for him. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's something that he has put into our life to uh, sharpen us. And since Paul's number one goal is to know Christ and be like Christ, he's, he's not running from it. Then in verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. He's probably talking when I face Nero. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Doesn't matter what this guy does to me. You know, this is fascinating when he's thinking this through. What is his hope? I just hope he lets me go. Or, I hope if he kills me, it's pretty painless and it's quick. His only, his only hope here. It's not that. but my, His only hope here is when I'm there. Whatever comes up, I just pray that I don't bring any shame on his name. And that's powerful, isn't it? That's, uh, that's his hope. That's his desire. And then he says in verse 21, very famous text. He says, for to me, this is why I can say that, he says. This is why I can worry about not, just not, I don't want to be ashamed. I'm not worried about whether I live or not. For to me, to live is Christ. But to die is gain. A lot of people have a lot of things that they live for. If we were to take your closest friends, your closest associates, and we were to say, what what does this person live for? Now, you can't answer that question because I think we're blindsided. Sometimes we don't see the picture. We think better of ourselves than we ought, all that. But if your friends and relatives answer that question... What would they say you live for? Paul. And this is, this, he, he can persevere through persecution because he has a different definition of life. New definition. He lived for different things before. Some people are going to live for money. Not necessarily because they want to go buy a lot of stuff, but see, money gives them significance. They're important if they make money. That's, that's, that's what they live for. Some people live for money not because they want Money, they want to buy, they want the pleasure, they want the the fun and the excitement that it gives. And that's what they're living for. Some people live for family, some people live for um, uh, moralism. Uh, You know, Les Mis, remember Les Mis? Uh, Paul was here. Uh, Javert, in in the uh, production Les Mis, was the policeman, right? And, and Javert was driven by moralism. It was, it was law. It was, it was right or wrong. And if, in fact, you kept the law, you were right. If you didn't, you were wrong. And, and Javert was committed to this. Well, the whole, the whole production, he's chasing after Valjean, who was a criminal. And this is the wildest thing. When he finally catches or gets up with this guy, the tables are turned. And Valjean actually uh, saves his life, Javert's life, and, and shows him grace. And Javeres doesn't have a category for this. Whoa, hang on, whoa, I don't, I can't be indebted to a criminal. Wait, he's supposed to be wrong, but is he really? And his, his philosophy of life, that which he is living for, we can't be consistent with, because I don't believe you can be consistent with any philosophy of life other than Christianity, living for Christ. 
when he finally hits that despair, he takes his life. Living for anything other than living for Christ will sooner or later bring despair. It will will lead you to to the brink where you will have to either deny reality, live in a... Live in in a a lack of continuity. But living for Christ. So what would your friends, what would your relatives say? Would they say, this guy doesn't live for the church, doesn't live for moralism, doesn't live for right or wrong. He lives for Christ. Paul's got the second definition here going, though, too, because he defines also death differently. He says uh, that he lives for... to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He says that, that's a financial term there. He says, if I die, it's profit. And he's he's going to go on and he's going to use the, as he's thinking this through, in verse 23, he says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. You know, But what shall I choose? It's not really his choice anyway. It's, it's going to be Nero's choice. But I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you. That word for depart is the word for going going home. It's, it's let's just say you were on a a you you had this dream you're gonna go camping in the Sierra Nevadas. Three months backpacking camping. It was just gonna be wonderful. And so you you fly out there, you get out there, but for whatever reason they got a bumper crop of mosquitoes who are attracted to repellent and it's got this horrific rainstorms and tornadoes and the flooding is awful and all your stuff is soaking wet from day one and you can't start fires anymore because everything's wet and you're drenched and the, the temperatures begin to drop and you run out of food but the fish aren't biting it. So it's just awful, awful, awful. Finally you survive that, believe it or not, and you get try to get back to the airport and you stop off at you know Lola's Pink Flamingo Motor Lodge to spend the night before you fly out and Lola's is not known for its hygiene, man, or for taking care of its rooms or up to date and so you're, you're in this place with no heat and some mess and you're afraid you're going to catch some diseases and the walls are, are paper thin and they've got parties going on all night. You finally get out of that place and you get to the airport late because of the construction and the roads and the traffic just to watch your flight fly away that you were supposed to be on. No more flights until tomorrow and you're going, you know what? I, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. That's, that's the picture that is here. You just Paul just, that's how he sees death. I just want to go home. And, and if you follow his argumentation here, he says, if I stay on that camping trip, if I stay doing, then I know that will be beneficial because to live is Christ. I'm not living for myself. I'm not living for pleasure. I'm not living to move up the ladder. I'm not living for early retirement. I'm not living to see my grandkids. If that happens, it's wonderful. But I'm living for Christ, whether that's life or death, whatever happens with that. And Paul is in it stuck between a win-win situation. If I stay around, then good, I get to live for Christ. And if I die, I get to see him. It's like, do I go to Epcot or do I go to Magic Kingdom? I don't know. This is just too nice of a deal here. This is what he's wrestling through. But when you have a definition of life, when you're living for Christ, when you're living for the gospel, when you didn't just embrace the gospel, but it has embraced you, you're living for that. You know what? Persecution's not a big deal. You're not looking for it. None of us are going looking for it. Gospel doesn't make us masochists. But when it comes, life or death. And then he goes on and gives a third reason how we can persevere when persecution happens. He says, whatever happens, verse 27, whatever, whatever comes up. And we're going to find out exactly what he's talking about here in verse 30, the last verse of this chapter. 
whatever what he means by this, whatever happens. But whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that, that's, that's, that's an interesting phrase. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a government term he uses. Actually, you could translate that. Whatever happens, live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. He's going to come back to this idea in Philippians 3.20. He says that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, 90 years before Paul came on the scene, this is important to know about Philippi, 90 years before uh, Paul came on the scene, the Roman emperor was Octavian. Octavian was embroiled in a civil war. He was, he was squaring off against two of his generals. The deciding battle who would win, who would get the empire, was fought on the plain of Philippi, 800 miles from Rome. And Philippi, they could have went different ways, but they decided to throw all their weight behind Octavian, the emperor. And so when Octavian won, he was so indebted to these guys, he was thinking, there's no way I could have won without Philippi, that he did a very unique thing here. He granted Philippi the full rights and privileges of Rome, as if you were Roman. You, you, you give all, this was like little Rome. This was like a branch of Rome. This, this Philippi was adopted by Rome. And if you were a citizen of Philippi, and that was 800 miles from Rome, they were the talk. Because you had a special relationship with, with the Caesar himself. Rome, almighty Rome was indebted to you. Yeah, well, you know, what can I say? It was, it was a great thing. And so it was, it was a, a, a matter of pride and honor. And so for Paul to challenge these guys and say, I know, I know, your citizenship. It's, it's Roman, I got it. But you're 800 miles from Rome. You're living as a little colony of Rome in Macedonia. But I need you to think that you are really, your church is really a little colony of heaven in Macedonia. Your first allegiance is not to Rome. The first person you need to be living for is not Rome. It's Jesus. It's heaven. Now, some folk were going to struggle with this because different reasons. One, they're, they're, this was such a huge thing. But also in the church, most probably a lot of military guys. You, you veterans know that when you fight alongside of somebody and some, you see some of your buddies pay the ultimate price and there was uh, maybe hurt along the way, nothing bonds you more. You have a love for your country that folk who haven't gone through that can have. And so some of these guys are there, and they're like, whoa, Paul, I, I fought for Rome. What are you talking about? And he says, Paul used his Roman citizenship. So this was, Paul wasn't saying, forget them. He's just saying, first, though, primary. You need to make sure that you're a citizen of, of heaven, because what's going to happen, although Paul may not even know it yet, but what's going to happen with the persecutions is the emperors are going to come on the scene, and they're going to say, you can be okay with Jesus. We're okay with Jesus. You can love Jesus. But first, you have to pledge allegiance to the emperor. Burn a little, little, burn a little sacrifice to Caesar. Tell everybody that Caesar is God. And then you can go follow whoever you want. I don't know if Paul knew that was coming down the pike. But God, the Holy Spirit, knew it was coming down the pike. And so Paul, prepping them, says, Your first, first allegiance is to, is to heaven, not, not, not Philippi, not, not Rome. 
So, so whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God, for it has been granted, look at this, verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And then Paul brings this all together in verse 30. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He goes through this whole portion of scripture where you're wondering a little bit, why is he doing this? He's doing this because of verse 30. He knows that they are going through persecutions. And he needs to let them see how he's dealing with it. He needs to let them see how they need to be thinking about this because it's been granted to them. Anyone who follows Christ. It's been, it's been, it's a gift. I don't want that gift. I want to take that one back. It's a gift that's been given to suffer for him, to be persecuted for him. When I was in uh, college, I had listened to a, a missionary. I'm thinking, this is, this, is, this is a long time back for me, but my understanding is he was served behind the Iron Curtain, um, 1960s type thing. Uh, Romania, maybe I can't remember, but he was he was called to, to be a uh, at a missions conference, big, huge Mongo Baptist church down south, and so on that Sunday they had all the I don't know if you've I've got relatives in Baptist churches down south and I I, I love them, but they do it huge matters of orchestras and flags and video and it's just all the people are professionals and it's just wow wow and they did it right right before he got up to speak huge huge piece. Christ to the nations or whatever. And then he came up to the pulpit to preach. And he said, you know, that was, a, that was beautiful. Wow, that was gorgeous. But it's not as beautiful as the songs I heard back in Romania in the prison. He says, every night I would hear that. They would sing the song. It's beautiful. They would take a prisoner and they'd take him down to the end cell. He called it something, end cell. And they would close the door, and then the prisoner would begin to sing. And his song would sound like this. And then the, the missionary just started to scream. I'm not going to go over that with you right now. But scream, blood curdling, screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming. It went on and on and on and on. And by the time he was done, he said, that was the song of somebody loving not their life unto death for Jesus' sake. That was the song of somebody living for Christ and dying for Christ. Most beautiful song I'd ever heard. Our persecutions in life, I don't know if we'll be persecuted to death. I do know if we can't handle lesser persecutions, we'll never get there. Lesser persecutions might be if you are in high school or college and you're saying, you know what, everyone's talking, everyone's putting pressure, all those things, and you're saying, you know what, yeah, I am a virgin. And you know what, I plan on staying that way because my spouse one day, whoever he or she may be, I believe that's how I will honor Christ. And so I'm going down that road. You don't think you're going to catch any persecution for that one? How about this? How about in the marketplace? When you reject corporate protocol and you know you've got to change the date or you know you have to uh, say whatever, you have to promise whatever, you have to take the clients to those trashy nightclub things and you say, I'm not going down that road. You're not trying to make your business church. You understand that. 
But you can't let the business turn you into a hellion. You're not going down that road because that would dishonor Christ. You don't think you might suffer some sort of persecution, whether in the loss of a promotion, maybe the loss of your job. How about when you're in this public forum and everyone's talking their plurality stuff and you say, you know what? You have the courage, you stamp, you say, you know what? I don't mean disrespect, I don't want to hurt anybody, but I truly believe Jesus really is the only way. There are absolutes. Two plus two equals four. It doesn't equal three, six, nine, whatever you want it. There are, and Jesus is the only way. And I believe without him, you're lost. You won't see. You don't think you're going to find some kind of backlash on that in this world? There are myriad myriad of ways. We don't go looking for persecution, but those opportunities for us to take a stand for him will be there. And when we do, the gospel will be advanced. And when we do, believers will be boldened. And when we do, we will be grown, raised up in him. Because we see our persecutions, we see our life, and we see our citizenship through his eyes.